Some of you received an outline uh, that uh, when you entered the doorway, and it is the wrong outline, so they told me at the uh, school here that you should use that as your quiet time for the next three weeks. And uh, thank you. Water? Anything else? During the time of Knights and Nobles, one of the greatest compliments that you could bestow on someone was to sing a song about them. To honor someone of greatness, you would compose an original song about them, and thus in a way you would immortalize them. What's surprising to me is that you'll find that same tradition in the Bible. In fact, remember during the, king, uh, the reign of King Saul, where he experienced the song that was the number one song on the charts. It was the top there. It was the hit single of its day. It was slaw, slaw. <laughs> Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And that was sung in the streets. Of course, that turned Saul into a music hater. He never got over that and spent the rest of his days fighting David instead of God's enemies. But even worse than that hit tune was no hit tune. In other words, one of the worst curses in the ancient world was to do great deeds, but to have no one notice. To be an unsung hero. To have incredible things done and yet no one take notice. The reason I share that with you is because that same attitude has made its way into the lives of Christians. Many collegians fear being insignificant, not being noticed, in fact, unappreciated. What I do doesn't really matter. Nobody notices, so it really doesn't count. Just ask them what they do for a living, and you can tell that they feel insignificant. What do you do? Well, I'm only a cook. What do you do? I'm only in a, a receptionist. What do you do? Well, I'm only an RA. What do you do? Well, I'm only the dean of men. What do you do? I don't do much. I'm just an accountant of a small firm, IBM. Christians feel the same way. They look at pastors or guys who are communicating God's truth, and they look at them and they say, well, gosh, if I could only be that way, well, then I would really count for the kingdom. Or if I could just sing and, and be musical, well, then my life would be significant. Or if I could just be a missionary and be sent across the world somewhere to do a great work for God, well, then it would really count. They have this feeling, this problem, that I'm not one of those, and so therefore I don't really count. I don't really measure up. But that's a problem. Because the church doesn't run with just upfront, seen kind of ministry. In fact, it's the unseen and the unsung that are most important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 22 and following, Paul says this. Don't turn there, just listen. It says, The members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members that we think less honorable, God has given more abundant honor. And in Paul's analogy of the body, what he's saying is you can live without an eye. You can live without fingers. You can live without an ear, but you can't live without a kidney or a liver or an organ. Those things that are inside that no one ever sees. The unsung parts of the body are the most crucial that keep it going. You see, that means three things. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have a part to play in the church. A very significant part to play in the body of Christ. Even if it's an unseen part. 
it is still absolutely crucial to the livelihood and the success of the body of Christ, the church, of God's expression of ministry in this age. It also means, number two, that no matter what you're like, God has given you a a tailor-made, unique ministry that no one else can do. No one else. And number three, it means you'll never know, you'll never know the abundance that God has designed for your life until you find your fit in the body of Christ. You will never know the blessings that He wants to bestow on you and through you until you find your unique place in the body of Christ. Do you know your fit? Some of you say, well, I just want to be married. I, I want to marry a six-foot-tall, dark-haired man who drives a Porsche. That's fascinating to find out what you end up with. He could be five foot one, bald, and drive a moped, you know? I'm a parent. I have a wife and two boys, and, and I thought I'd bring a wallet photo here, right here. This is, this is Gene, Matthew, and Mark. We're praying for Luke and John still. And uh, as a parent, I study my boys because I want to guide them as a father should. And I begin to notice certain things about my son, Matthew. Loves time. You can do a lot of things for Matthew. Uh, You can give him gifts, but when you score with Matthew, when you really connect with Matthew, is that you spend time with him. And so on Monday before I got on the plane, I went down to his school and stood outside his classroom and surprised him and just sat and had lunch with him. And for 15 minutes, we just talked and conversed. And after that time, it was almost predictable. Because after that time, he he gets up and even in front of his friends, comes over, gives me a big big hug and says, Dad, I love you because I spent time with you. My son Daniel, um, he loves gifts. You can spend a lot of time with Daniel, but unless you give him gifts, he doesn't really know that you love him. And so I sent him a card when I was on one trip and I called him up and said, Daniel, did you get your card? Mark Daniel is his name. Did you get your card? And he said, well, yeah, Dad, but next time, could you put a dollar inside before you send it? (laughs) Six years old. Unbelievable. I've been studying not only their likes and dislikes, but their skills. And I found out to kind of help them find their fit. I've looked at Mark Daniel, and he likes to take things apart. Um, He likes to break pens open and... Take toys apart, dismantle the stereo, dissect the dog. You know, I mean, just amazing things. And um, we kind of think he's going to be either a demolition expert or a surgeon, one of those two. And the reason I share that with you is that in the same way, when you study your own soul, as God has made you and put you together, he has given you a skill, a unique fit purpose within the context of the family of God, not the local family, but the, the larger family of God that only you can do. You say, that's nice. No, it's not. It's crucial. It's crucial. You'll never know the abundance that God has for you until you find that fit. Take Roger, a man at our church, good friend. Tried to be an elder. Tried to do helps and help people and set things up, take things down. He tried to be an evangelist in some expression of that. He he tried mercy. Never fit, never content. Until now, when you look at him, you'd never see a happier Christian. Busy, yes. 
sacrificing sometimes, yes, worn out sometimes, but he's never happy. You know, he found his fit. You know what his fit is? Shepherding junior hires, pre-human beings. <laughs> Unbelievable. And he loves it. He can't wait. He's right exactly where he's supposed to be. And not only is it something where you'll find the abundance that God has for you, but it's also your method for survival. I've had an amazing year. 1992 was probably the best 10 years of my life. I was called, slandered in the newspapers in our town, called Jim Jones. I was sued. I was actually about to be physically removed from my pulpit by 20 men in the front row. And you know what? I wouldn't be doing anything else in the world because I'm right where God wants me to be. I found my fit. I was doing what he's supposed to be. And, and I couldn't have survived if I wouldn't have known exactly what he wanted me to do. And no matter what happens, you'll survive in that kind of context. Do you know your fit? Let's get really kind of greasy today, can we? I can't ennoble you like some of the men who have gone before me. I'm kind of like a mechanic kind of preacher, work with the nuts and bolts. So stick your hat on backwards, would you, like Gomer? Open the hood, and let's look at what the engine is like and the way God has put you together. Let's find your fit and open your Bible, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Let's check out your commitment to the church. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Let's just read these two verses. It says, As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's writing to people just like you and I. And in the midst of his discussion of suffering and persecution, he now is moved by the Spirit of God to give us some kind of survival principles to live in a hostile world. How are you going to make it as this world becomes less and less based on a Christian ethic and more and more based on a hostile to Christianity type of stance? We'll take a look at verse 7. He says, if you're going to survive in this hostile world, then remember time is short. Think clearly. Keep your cool. Don't panic. Have an eternal perspective. Give yourself to prayer. Love one another and have a great love for the lost. And then he wraps it up with two survival exhortations in verses 10 and 11. And what he's saying is if you're going to survive in a hostile world, then you have to be fully involved in ministry. If you're going to really make it in this world, you've got to know your place, know your fit. Every member of the body of Christ is in the ministry. You say, why? Why should I do this? Go back to what Daryl shared and the men yesterday shared. We're here to live for the glory of God. We all know that. Say, how, to, how do you glorify God? Let me give you the secret of the Christian life. Are you ready? Only God can glorify God. Only God can glorify God. Say, what does that mean? The only time you glorify God is when God in you lives through you to give glory to God. 
Remember Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but who? Christ lives in me. It is Christ in us and through us. That means what you are here today, Christian, is a pipe. Some of you are itty-bitty refrigerator pipes. Some of you are gigantic, gigantic sewer-type pipes. Or maybe needed drainage pipes. Whatever kind of pipe you are, it says God fills us and flow through us that you begin to experience the presence of God and the blessing of God. And as you then point your life towards those unbelievers and as God flows through you, they see Jesus Christ. And some respond as the Holy Spirit draws them to Himself. And as you point that pipe to other Christians, that's ministry. And God has given you a specific kind of ministry. Let's look at the importance of it by looking at verse 10. Two points today. First, the importance of this fit. Notice what Peter says in verse 10. He says, as each one has received a special gift. The word each one there is emphatic. It means it's beginning in the verse. And the emphasis is each one of you have received a special gift. And God's point is that each one of you is crucial. Even if you're unseen, if, even if you're an unsung hero, you're crucial. In fact, in God's word, there's no gap between the clergy and laity. It's essential for everyone to function. As a, and, and they have a place to serve and a part to play. It's kind of like you're a, you're a jigsaw puzzle. i got a little jigsaw piece up here. Each one of you is just like this. The protrusions are like your strengths, your talents, your gifts. The indentations are your weaknesses, your shortcomings. The elements of your personality, they're unbalanced. Each one of you is just like a piece in a jigsaw. And what's fascinating, the beautiful thing is the, in the plan of God is that the pieces complement one another. And so your weaknesses are filled in by my strengths and your strengths then fill in my weaknesses. And then as we fit together in its expression in the local assembly, then we give the world a picture of Jesus Christ. You ever made a jigsaw puzzle and had about three or four pieces missing? And immediately your attention is not drawn to the picture, but what? To the missing piece. Could you be that missing piece? and the expression of the local body as they give the world a picture through our love and through our unity of Jesus Christ. Not only is it crucial, but also this verse tells us it's a privilege. Look at verse 10 again. He says, as each one has received a gift. And the word gift there is meaning something that is given out of grace. It's something that comes from God and never could have been achieved on your own or by your own effort. It's a God-given ability with for service within the body of Christ. It's a, a, as a member, you've received a unique and special task or undeserved giftedness in which you use help to help others become more like Christ. It's a blessing from God to show love. His love. A few Valentine days back, I, I gave my wife, Jean, a, a bottle of love I bought some parchment paper, five pens, and a couple of stamps and with little hearts on it and a fancy bottle, and I cut the paper into long strips and wrote up categories that would represent gifts to her. I put ten recreation slips, and that meant, you know, like to go bowling or play racquetball together, and ten dinner slips to very special restaurants that she liked, like McDonald's, and etc. 
10 snacks, ice cream and honeycomb candy, which she really likes. Five time zones, which meant that I would watch the kids for a certain period of time. Five trips to places like museums where she really likes to go. And 10 love slips, which are none of your picking business. And I <clears throat> rolled them up, back rubs. You know what I'm talking about. And, <clears throat> and I put them into little scrolls. <laughs> and I put... <laughs> All right. <clears throat> I put them into a jar, and they were to last the entire year, so that one a week she could pull out as an expression and a reminder of my love for her. Can you imagine what it would be like if she let it sit there on the shelf, let it collect dust for a while, put it away somewhere where she couldn't see it, and then eventually I saw it in the trash? Can you imagine what that would be to me, to see her then treat that gift in such a manner. You know, our God loves you greater than a husband could ever love a wife. And how is it that you express and treat the gift that he has given you? See, the importance of it is not only that it's crucial and a privilege, but also it's a responsibility. Take a look at verse 10 again. It's a responsibility. He says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards. And stewardship is a responsibility. And you're taught well here. And you know, you know that a steward is someone as a slave who is taking care of another man's property. And you have a responsibility, Christian, of dispensing another person's property, a gift that has been given you from God to be dispensed and managed. Take a look, if you would, and turn over to Luke chapter 19, verse 16. Let's look at this issue of stewardship just for a moment. How does God view stewardship in Luke chapter 19? There's a lot of history and truth that's contained in this particular parable. I just want to focus on the elements that, that give light to what stewardship is all about. And in the parable of the ten minas, this nobleman goes to a distant country, and before he goes, he gives ten slaves, uh, ten minas each, Excuse me, he gives ten slaves one mina each, which is about three months' wages. And he tells them to do business with it until he comes back. And when he does return, he calls three of the slaves who represent the rest. And he calls them to report what business they've done and how they had used their stewardship, their gift. Look at verses 16 and 17 of Luke 19. He says, as we draw out three truths here, And the first slave appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. Be in authority over ten cities. And principle number one of stewardship is it starts with little things. Little things. God expects you to use what you have, no matter how big or no matter how small. If you teach, then teach. If you're a giver, then give. And you may be the best encourager, so do it by sharing, talking, writing. You may be a great person with your hands, and so serve that way. And you may be an incredible administrator, so organize things. But use what God has given you. Be faithful with that little task. Some of us don't want to do little things. We wouldn't really say that because it would embarrass us. We, we only want to do big things. Public things, spotlight things. But stewardship starts with little things. Things, being faithful and little. Look at the second principle. The second principle of stewardship is that reward, the reward for doing little things, 
The reward for doing little things well is a bigger job. Now, that's the exact opposite in our society. The reward for doing a good job well is retirement in our society. The reward for doing a little thing well in God's economy is a bigger job. He says, you've been faithful in little things, verse 17. I give you authority over ten cities. Wow! Well done means now here's a really big job for you to do. You know, once you do it well, you don't stop. You just get more responsibility. The men who have come and proclaimed God's Word to you already and will this week are men, in my opinion, as I have watched their lives, who were faithful in little things. And God gave them great responsibility. That's where it starts. Let's take a look at the third principle. Not only if you do things well, you get a bigger job, but stewardship principle number three is found in verse 20. Take a look at it. Luke 19. And another slave came saying, Master, behold your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. And Jesus goes on to call this slave a worthless slave. He takes his mina away and gives it to the other one. Principle number three of stewardship is this. There's great danger in a life wrapped in a handkerchief. Those of you who are poor stewards of what God has given you, those of you who do nothing with your gifts and talents and resources and abilities are in great danger. One of the parallel passages, that, as it's articulated in the Gospel of Matthew, it would lead us to believe that those who don't use their gifts in service and never produce fruit, they're not saved and they're destined for hell. The true steward, the true Christian is a steward of what God has given them and they manifest that stewardship. They demonstrate it. Now go back, if you would, to 1 Peter. Because remember, he calls us to be good stewards. And the word good is not the moral good of, of the Scripture, but it's the display kind of good. It's, it's the good that shows off. It's the good that people see in order to give glory to God in heaven. They begin to demonstrate Jesus Christ and His reality and so the ministry of the members is important, not only because of all these reasons, but now the last one, it's unique. It's important because it's unique. Take a look at the end of verse 10. It says, we serve one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And the word manifold there, many of you know, means many colored, variegated, like the spots of a leopard. It's different colors. It's all different kinds. And when you look at people and gifts and expressions, they're all different manifestations of the grace of God. Take a look, a real hard look right now of the person sitting next to you. Take a look at their face, face-to-face -face right now. Notice how different they are? Some of you are going, yeah, they're really different. <laughs> Men and women, that's the grace of God. Not only did He give us external differences, He gave us internal. I like to work with wood in my garage and made me think of a story about some tools that decided to hold a meeting about who was needed and who was not. Brother Hammer presided. Several suggested that he leave the meeting because he was just too noisy. Replied the Hammer, well, if I have to leave this shop, then Brother Screw must leave also because you've got to turn him around and around again to get him to accomplish anything. Brother Screw spoke up and he said, if you wish, I'll leave, but Brother Plain must leave also. His work is on the surface. There's no depth to what he does. To this, Brother Plain reported, well, Brother Rule will have to withdraw because he's always measuring folks as though they were the only one, he was the only one that's right. 
And Brother Rule then complained against Brother Sandpaper because he was always rubbing people the wrong way. And in the midst of all this discussion, Jesus walked in and used all the tools in which to build a pulpit to proclaim the gospel. All those differences working together will then ultimately glorify God and give Him the credit that He is due. Each one of us is different, but each one of us working together can accomplish what God has for us to do. In fact, we're so unique that only you can accomplish the work that God has given you to do. Don't reread Ephesians 2.10 the same way anymore. He has prepared for us good works. He's prepared you with a unique task that only you can do. You say, okay, okay, it's important. Well, how do I find mine? Well, that's point number two in our outline. Not only that is important, but also let's find the instruction on how to find our fit. Look at First Peter chapter two verses again. Excuse me, First Peter four ten and eleven again. He says in the middle of verse ten that our gift is to be employed in serving one another. And in verse eleven it says, "With our service, we are to rely on the strength that God supplies." And the first step to find your fit, to find your ministry, the way that God wants you to be. Here are the steps. He gives it to us. He says, "Serve, serve." The word is to wait on another, to care for another. It's to wash someone else's feet. In fact, it's in the present tense, which means it goes on continually. And if you're going to find your fit, if you're going to find your place in the kingdom of God, it's going to be as you give yourself first to service on a continual basis within the context of the body. That's when you'll find it. It's not found in a classroom. It's not found in your quiet time. It's found as you serve and step out in faith. In fact, to really understand this, turn over, if you would, to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Here the early church was growing and there was needs going unmet and the apostles couldn't meet the needs, so they chose certain men to meet those needs. Acts chapter 6, in the middle of verse 5, it says they chose many men, but one of them was named Stephan, a man full of faith, it says, in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then at verse 8, it says that Stephen was full of grace and power. Here's a man who had a remarkable grasp on the Word of God. Here's a man who, who had this incredible wisdom, boldness, and power. Here's a unique man that if he were here in our context, you would point him out and say, there's a unique Christian man set apart to do a great work of God. And what great task did the early church have for Stephen when he first started out? Serve tables. Unbelievable! I mean, Stephen could have said, well, I don't think you really understand how gifted I am. I mean, he could have stood back and said, wait a minute, I'm capable of great works for God. But no, he didn't. Praise God, he didn't. He humbly took his place with the other six servers and later became the first church martyr. What's the point? There's always room for another servant. You know, the spotlight can get a little crowded. But there's always room in the shadows for one more faithful servant who's willing to get down like Jesus and wash others' feet. It's so easy to forget the example that Christ set for us, isn't it? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? 
serve. It's easy to forget not only His example, but His exhortation. The greatest among you shall be your servant. To find your fit, it won't be in chapel. It won't be in classes. It'll be in service to the body of Christ. Washing feet. Giving sometimes till it hurts. Sometimes publicly, as verse 11 articulates, sometimes privately. But either way, service. Turn back, if you would, to 1 Peter. Because next you'll find that not only you'll find your fit through service, but you'll find your fit through the Holy Spirit working through you. Not only service, but independence upon the Holy Spirit. I was so encouraged when Dr. MacArthur prayed, recognizing the fact that we can do nothing without the indwelling Holy Spirit. Acknowledging the fact that we can do nothing without His ministry through us. Look again at verse 11. Let me give you the literal rendering. God says through Peter, If one speaks as God's sayings, if one ministers as out of the strength which God supplies, and as we serve through ministry, whether through speech or whether through actions, it needs to be empowered by God by the Holy Spirit. In fact, God's work done God's way will never lack with God's power. See, the only pipe that's going to be ministered is the one that's flowing in and through with the Holy Spirit. You need to be, as Ephesians calls us, to be filled with the Spirit. That means under His control, filled with the Word of God. Some use the term yielded. And you know what yielded is in Southern California. Right? When you're getting on the freeway and it says yield, that means run that other guy off the road. It means that he has the right...